when you start looking at your business and you say, well, where is the constraint in the business? You know, is it market demand? And if it is market demand, what is the best way of growing market demand? So if that's a constraint, what are the conditions that if I could satisfy could achieve that? Hello and welcome to The Melting Pot. I'm your host, Dominic Monkhouse. The Melting Pot is a result of my hunger and curiosity for optimizing business performance, exploring corporate culture, customer addiction, and building high-performing teams. It's full of advice from my guests, entrepreneurs, fellow business authors, and examples from some of my work over the last few years, coaching the CEOs and leadership teams of some amazingly successful tech firms. The Melting Pot is my attempt to synthesize what I've learned along the way to help you build a highly scalable business and realize the potential of your life's work. If you enjoyed the episode, head over to monkhouseandcompany.com forward slash podcast to find today's show notes and more editions of The Melting Pot. While you're there, if you subscribe to the newsletter, you can pick up a copy of my new book, Plan B, How to Scale Your Technology Business Faster and Achieve Plan A. Enjoy. Hello. Today, I'm talking with and learning from Dr. Alan Bernard. Alan is a South African now living in Las Vegas. He is an entrepreneur, strategic advisor, research scientist, app developer, author, coach, philanthropist, lecturer, podcaster, and lifelong learner. And he's also a constraint theorist. And he was the inspiration maybe for a book. Certainly it's it's referenced by the authors as an inspiration. And the book is 10X is Easier Than 2X, which is the new bestseller from Dan Sullivan and Benjamin Hardy. And Alan got asked a question by Joe Polish at an event. And the question was, how would you increase net margin by 10%? And Alan said, that's a rubbish question. And he tells this story at the end of our conversation today. He said, if you only had to do it by 10%, there's loads of ways you could do that. So it doesn't help in terms of making a decision. But what if you had to increase it 10x, then there are probably only one or two ways you could do that. And I think this use of constraints and having bigger goals really helps clients get clarity on strategy or working out which strategic moves that they could make are the ones they need to double down on and give management attention to. In our conversation today, Alan says really that management attention is probably the only constraint in fast-growing successful businesses. And so how do you apply your management attention to the right things? We talk about that. Uh, He runs Goldratt Research Lab, which he co-founded with Ellie Goldratt, the author of the book that Vern Harnish says is the best business book in the world, The Goal. And so we talk about constraint theory and what that means and how that how he's been able to apply that to a number of his brand recognition clients. So a fantastic conversation with Alan. It rattles along. I'm sure you'll love it. Hi, my name is Dr. Alan Barnard. I'm CEO of Goldet Research Labs, and it's a great privilege to be on the show, Dominique. Uh, looking forward to our discussion. Thanks very much for coming on. Alan, what do you do at Gold Rat Research Labs? Well, we founded, I co-founded the company in, back in 2009 with Dr. Ellie Goldratt, who's the creator of Theory of Constraints. He wrote this Theory of Constraints. And since then, it's become one of the 150 most read books of all time. It's a book that Jeff Bezos 
you know, recommends for, for him and his whole team to read every time they do a big offsite. And it popularized this idea that when you're trying to, you know, analyze and improve and manage complex systems, how do you go about doing that? Do you try to analyze and improve and manage every part of a system? Or alternatively, a much simpler and much more effective approach is to just analyze and improve and manage the constraints of the system. So you have a goal. The goal dictates what resources you need. And it also dictates how much of every resource you need. You need market demand. You need capacity to meet that demand. You need supply. You need cash. You need management attention. And whichever resource you don't have enough of to meet your goal is your constraint. And that will ultimately limit your performance. It's exactly like the weakest link limits the the strength of the chain. Your constraint limits the performance of the whole system. So it's an incredibly powerful hack to say, I can actually analyze, manage, and improve the whole system just by analyzing, managing, and improving the constraint. So that was the powerful idea that Dr. Goldert introduced through theory of constraints. And what we do in our research lab is we've taken these core principles and we are constantly looking for new applications and new knowledge, developing new knowledge. So we tend to partner with typically very large companies. They're often leaders within the industries, companies like Microsoft, Cisco, ABB, Random House Publishing, Tata Steel, and others, where we are using these frameworks and methodologies to solve wicked problems in their industry. Fantastic. But we were chatting before we were recording it, and you said you came to this because you were running your own business and you've got personal experience of fixing a constraint. What? Tell me that. Tell me that story. What's what happened there? This, I studied industrial engineering, and literally my first job was at one of the largest cookware companies in Africa. This was still when I was back in South Africa, and I'd read the goal when I was studying industrial engineering, and just couldn't wait for the opportunity <laughs> to apply it. So when I became head of engineering for this company, you know, you can imagine a lot of factories producing cookware, mass production, you know, production lines, etc. And they suffered from the common problems that most fast-moving good manufacturers suffer from, which was, you know, very poor due date performance. In in our case, it was around 30 to 40% of the commitments we were making to our retail clients. We were actually delivering on time and in full, which is pretty bad. We had long, pretty long lead times, so we were forcing customers to give us long-term forecasts long ahead of time, you know, to be able to manufacture too. And the other frustrating part was when we compared the design capacity of our bottlenecks on our various lines, and we compared that to the actual production that was coming out, we were way underproducing the theoretical design capacity of our bottlenecks. And you can imagine, like, why would that happen if you're the bottleneck, right? (laughs) To get close to your maximum capacity, you should never be starved or blocked. Yeah. Right? That's that's the only way to get one resource to perform at the maximum is for that resource to never be starved or blocked or never be down, you know, either planned or unplanned maintenance. But as soon as I start measuring the efficiencies of you get them to produce what makes them more efficient. And that causes often the bottleneck to be starved and blocked. 
And that's kind of one of the fallacies is, you know, we try to maximize the utilization of every part of the system rather than focusing just on maximizing the utilization of the bottleneck. So that was a big aha moment for me was that we we had these production lines there. Each production line had a bottleneck. We had to arrange that production line so that that bottleneck was never starved or blocked. And the outcome that we got was tremendous. We essentially doubled the throughput in our factories without increasing operating expenses or working capital. We got our due date performance up to 100%. And we got our lead times dramatically down, you know. So it, it was an amazing experience. And, you know, as soon as you experience results like that and, and it makes you feel alive, you know, it's like, okay, I want to do this for the rest of my life. You know, I want to have this feeling. And, and that's kind of after that, I went to South African breweries. I wanted to test, you know, whether these concepts not just hold in manufacturing operations, but something like beverages, which is much more process flow. And it's a much, much more difficult operation to improve because you're so limited with infrastructure, vessels and piping, et cetera. It's not uh-huh. like you could come up with a very clever algorithm to schedule a job shop. This is very, very hard like a two, three percent improvement in the process plant is considered magical, you know, whereas in a manufacturing shop, you can easily improve by 20, 30 percent. So I tried the principles in, in South African breweries and we got again dramatic results. And that really, really got me excited. How much better than two to three percent did you do? We were achieving results of, we called it Operation Squeeze. Uh, you know, how to squeeze more capacity from these breweries. And, and typically, the reason why it was so important is, you know, these breweries, they cost a lot of money to build. And it's hard to predict accurately what the demand is going to be. So you often are put in positions where your capacity closely matches the demand. And during peak times, you just don't have enough capacity to meet the demand. So you either lose sales or you have to import beer from other regions, which is an extremely costly exercise. So we created this project called Project Squeeze, which was how to squeeze more production out of these facilities without compromising quality, but enough to be able to meet the peak demand, not just the Mm -hmm. average demand. And the results was astounding. We were getting 10 to 15% more out of these production facilities, something that people thought was simply impossible. Fab. So you got excited all over again. Yeah, we got excited all over again. And, you know, in the meantime, I met Dr. Eddie Goldratt. We had become pretty good friends. And we started working, you know, after after South African breweries. I, I joined a couple of partners. We started a company that provided software that was based on fear of constraints together with, you know, fear of constraints and other continuous improvement consulting. But Ellie sort of kept on nagging me, you know, why don't you join me, you know? start working on some really big projects. And in the late 1990s, I started working very closely with them. And that's when we started working on really big projects like implementing theory of constraints at Cisco Systems and and ABD and later Tata Steel and Randomized Publishing. And it just proved to me how wide of an application there was for this very simple concept that Rather than trying to analyze and, and manage and improve the system by analyzing, managing, improving each part of the system, you can do it by just analyzing, managing, improving the constraint of the system. So Tata Steel, Cisco, 
maybe not directly random house there that sounds like that's just people people and processes or was it in the book printing area which sounds more manufacturing yes it was in the in the but it, it was across the whole supply chain so to, to give an idea of, of how powerful this concept is, right? So I had a, a, a brief meeting with the CEO of the company um, to see, you know, how does something like theory of constraints apply to a CEO, right? Because you can imagine you can apply it to a process, find a bottleneck, find ways to make sure that you fully exploit the bottleneck and not waste it. So make sure it's never starved or blocked and that when there is planned or unplanned downtime that it's, you know, fixed as quickly as possible. And as a result, you can improve flow. But where the power of fear of constraints really comes in is when you're applying it at the strategic level. When you start looking at your business and you say, well, where is the constraint in the business? You know, is it market demand? And if it is market demand, what is the best way of growing market demand? So if that's a constraint, what are the conditions that if I could satisfy could achieve that? So when I met with the CEO, I, I asked the CEO, so what's your growth plan? And he said he committed to double the net profit of the company. And I said, okay, how are you going to do that? And he said, well, I'm going to double sales. And as soon as he said that, I knew what was his limiting assumption, which is often the limiting assumption of most CEOs, is that they assume that costs are fixed, right? So to double net profit, I have to double sales. Yeah. Now, you can imagine the challenge, and this is going back to the early 2000s, right? As Amazon is just coming online, more and more books are being you know, printed as electronic books. So they're expecting this double whammy where more books are going to be copied for free. They will sell less. And the average selling price of an electronic book is less than the physical book. So none of the other candidates for the CEO position were willing to commit to even growing net profit, never mind doubling. So the CEO said, well, so how would theory of constraints apply to this problem that I have? I said, well, part of what theory of constraints is all about is to identify leverage points in a system, places where small changes can have big impacts, right? And that happens when you're dealing directly with a constraint. So he said, well, give me an example. I said, okay, so you have a, a goal of doubling your net profit. Their sales at the time in the US was about 1.5 billion. Net profit was 150. So he had committed to doubling net profit to 300. I said, okay, so you think that the best way to double net profit is to double sales. So you're going to have to launch new, more new books. You're going to have to go into more new markets. Compared to, let me ask you a question. Do you think that a customer cares a lot about what the price is that they pay for a book? Do you think that they care a lot whether they pay 20 bucks or 22 bucks? And he kind of laughed and he said, you know, he always thought that consumers are not that price sensitive. So probably they wouldn't care that much. I said, but think about this. If you can get an increase in the average selling price of just 10%, that will increase your sales by 10%. So it will take you that 1.5 billion in sales. That's another $150 million. And that will drop straight to the bottom line because your variable costs won't go up, your fixed costs won't go up. So you can double your net profit 
by just increasing the average selling price by 10%. And that doesn't necessarily mean that you increase the price. It just means that you give away less discounts or you sell more directly to the consumer rather than through wholesalers or distributors. And he literally, Dominic, he, he asked me to just pause a minute. He called in some of his team and he said, okay, just explain again what you've just explained, right? And uh, we went through the numbers again. Everybody went, oh my goodness, that is absolutely true. What would be the lowest cost, lowest risk, you know, way of doubling net profit? Would it be to try and find a way of doubling your sales or just find a way of increasing the average selling price by 10%? I said, okay, so that's the biggest leverage point. The second one is to say... I hope at this point he was paying you before you told him all this. <laughs> biggest weaknesses. I just love solving problems. I'm not always good at monetizing this. But the second part was to say, so if you have to do it with volume, right? So you have a market constraint at the moment, which means that you probably have some protective capacity, some excess capacity. I, I asked him, if you had to phone up all your direct reports and you would ask them, listen, if we increase the volume by about 20%, do you think that you could handle it, your department, whether you're in finance or in distribution or book printing, do you think that you could find a way of dealing with about 20% increase in volume without increasing cost or at least not increasing cost in the same extent. You know, you might have to increase cost in one area, but it won't be 20%. And he said, yes, probably. I said, so let's do the numbers again. If you can increase your volume by 20%, so that would, and you sell at the same selling price on 1.5 billion, that's 300 million in sales, right? I said, worst case scenario, what is your variable cost as a percentage of selling price? And he said, look, we pay for printing and distribution costs. That's all variable. We pay royalties to the office. Worst case scenario is like 50% of the selling price. So I said, okay, so of that 300 million, 150 million will hit your bottom line, right? So again there, that's another leverage point. A 20% increase in the volume will double your net profit, will be a 200% increase in net profit, right? And that's kind of this idea of when you start thinking about the system as a whole, you say, where's my constraint? It's in the market. In order to you know, better exploit and not waste that market, I have to figure out a way of better utilizing what I've got. What are these ways? What are these leverage points? So it's a much more strategic way of thinking about the business. And that's obviously a very different strategy to saying, you know, we can sell whatever we produce, which was what happened at the time that I worked with Cisco, right? You put a Cisco badge on something and they would sell it. You know, it was just, things were just, so So there it wasn't about how do I increase demand? How do I increase? It was all about how do I increase capacity? You know, uh -huh. how do I expand capacity without just throwing money at the problem? And that's kind of one of the biggest problems is, Businesses that grow over time, if they grow their cost and capex at the same rate as what they're growing their sales, they're not getting leverage. So it's always, how can I grow sales faster than what I'm growing my opex and capex? That's where the real profitability growth comes from. Okay. I like that. What about people? I mean, when you said CEO, I did wonder, as humans, as individuals, we could apply the same thing. What am I world-class at? Because McKinsey did a bit of study looking at executives who are in flow 
And and if they were in flow, they were 500% more productive than the executives who weren't. So they'd done more on Monday by than than any the rest of their colleagues had done by Friday. And I was just thinking you could take that, you could take the same constraint theory and go, well, what is it that they're doing when they're in flow? Take all of the other stuff away and and then you've improved their throughput by 500% relative to somebody who's just doing a job, whatever that is. Absolutely. Absolutely. So around the early 2000s, you know, when we were dealing with these very big companies, more and more we started asking the question, so where is the real constraint? What is really limiting the performance of a company like Cisco or Walmart or Random House, you know? What is the ultimate constraint? Because when you when you think about even the biggest companies, they have a, a few percentage of the total market share. So it can't be the size of the market that's really will ultimately constrain them. It can't be capacity or cash or supply. And what we realize is if you define a constraint as any resource where the demand on that resource will always exceed available capacity, there's only one resource that will satisfy that condition, and it's called management attention. And as soon as we realize that, and you think about it, and the listeners can think about it, right? the number of things that demand your attention or could benefit from your attention, will it always exceed your available attention? And and a, a way of thinking about attention is it's just undistracted time, right? So we have 24 hours a day, but how much time of available attention do we have per day? You know, that focus time where you can make progress on the things that's meaningful, it's only a couple of hours. And it was fascinating to me when we discovered that and we started reading up everything about, you know, this new science of flow is that it's very similar to achieving flow in the supply chain, right? Which is undistracted. You just want the the ideas to flow through the system in the same way that you want materials and cash to flow through the system. It shouldn't stop and start. When you have disrupted flow, everything goes down, right? When you have uninterrupted flow, things just work. And, and that's kind of, okay, so now that we understand that, that the ultimate constraint is probably the, the top management's limited attention, how do we make sure that they focus on only those things that really matter? Those few leverage points, high, you know, high leverage points that can make a huge difference. How do we stop them from doing the many things that are not that important or will only help a little bit? How do we focus them on those few very, very important things? And that, that was a profound insight and made a massive change in how we were engaging with companies because now it was, okay, so the ultimate constraint is going to be management attention. So our job is to find out what you should focus on. Focus is not just about identifying what to do. It's as importantly, what not to do. What must I stop doing because it's just a distraction? Huh. How do you, if you're looking at a whole system, maybe you've got this sort of rule of thumb or heuristics, or you can just see it, see it when you talk about it. Or maybe you ask a series of questions that say, if you're looking at a whole complex system, you know, where do you go first? Like when you, I mean, you've got the guy at Random House saying, I want to double sales to double net profit. Say you're sort of one end of the system. What are some of the things, are there some questions? Are there some tools? Are there some frameworks that the listeners can go in? So one way of thinking about it is that 
you should look at constraints in a specific sequence, right? So if we're trying to find what's the one thing for top management to focus on now that will have a big impact on the goal of the system, as I've mentioned, when you set a goal for yourself in terms of either making an impact or an income, depending on whether you're for profit or for purpose, the, the first question that you should ask is, do we have a clear goal? If you say no, then guess what's the one thing? Set a clear goal. Because without it, nothing else matters. You can't, by definition, say what will be a constraint if you haven't defined a clear goal. You know, the goal dictates what resources I need and also how much of each I need. Once you've got that, then the next question becomes, you are probably creating some kind of product or service to achieve that goal. Is there enough demand for that product or service to meet the goal and the set of milestones that you've set? Maybe you have a five-year goal with annual milestones or quarterly milestones. Do you have enough demand for the product or service to meet that goal? If you say no, then that's the one thing. Focus all your limited attention on things. What will it take to get my dream customers, the ones that will benefit most from my product or service, to be willing to pay more, buy more, or buy more frequently? You know, Then you say, okay, now I feel confident that we have or can create enough demand. The next question is, would I have enough capacity to produce and sell this demand to that market? If not, then that's the one thing. Then the next question would be, do I have enough supply of raw materials or other inputs that I need to produce enough of the product or service to satisfy the demand to meet the goal? If not, then that's the one thing. And lastly, do I have enough cash to be able to afford enough of that? So that's kind of a way of me thinking about it in sequence. Where it becomes complicated is that when it feels like you're in chaos, right? It comes from the point that you've committed to such a goal, such an ambitious goal, that you don't have enough of anything. So the constraint is constantly moving around. And you can't manage a, a system that's in, in chaos. And unfortunately, most companies are there. So Derek's counterintuitively is to start thinking about your goal. How do I reduce the goal in a way that it's clear where the constraint is? where I have enough of everything else, but I just don't have enough of this one thing. Let me focus on getting that. When I add enough of that resource, then my potential will lift up and then say, okay, where's the next constraint going to be? You see, but I think that's, maybe this is how we get into some of the, how do people, why do people make bad decisions all the time? So I'm taking you back to the ceramic business that you're in. Yeah. And it feels to me, the way you described it, you know, we were only hitting 40% of our delivery promises. Um, so nobody's deliberately promising things that they that they don't expect to deliver, right? Otherwise, otherwise, they'd just be lying. And then by getting, what you're trying to do is you're trying to say to the customer, like, give us a long-term forecast because you think, you think the problem is demand forecasting. You think that's where the issue is. So you've, you've done that. And then in organizations where the people running the process are not also owning the financial implications of that process, people start to say, well, let's just try and reduce demand so that we can get get a hold on it. I, I remember being in a restaurant, which 
was a fantastic restaurant in Winchester. It ultimately closed. But on many occasions, I was in there and I had struggled to book a table. And I get there and the restaurant is only half full. And I said to the manager, I couldn't get a table. And yet the place is empty. And she said, oh, yes, but if we filled up all the tables, we'd overwhelm the kitchen. And I'm just sitting there thinking, you've got more demand. Just need to fix the stuff in the kitchen. And then, you know, you just ended up going bust. Place was lovely and the food was great. And you just go, because you're the manager and you're not in charge of the P&L or the finances of this business, what you've done is you've deliberately restricted demand to meet your current circumstances. And it felt as though the ceramics business that you're in were trying to do that. And when you came in and did something else, you were like, oh, this thing that we thought we could never do, which was increased production, was actually possible. Yes. And it's a great example of the of the, the restaurant because people often assume, you know, there's nothing I can do about a constraint, right? It's out of my control. It's somebody else's problem. Or the other mistake that they make is they say, okay, you know, I we we can only deal with half the demand, so let me double up, right? So I jump immediately to adding capacity versus saying, how do I better exploit what I've got? Is that kitchen, you know, really maximizing their performance? Let's go and study where they lose time, right? And make sure that we organize, subordinate everything around the kitchen until the constraint moves into another area. And that's kind of part of the methodology of theory of constraints is you have a you've set a goal identify where the constraint is decide how to better exploit and not waste that that constraint subordinate everything to that decision so any policy or measurement or behavior that's in conflict with a decision of better exploiting the the constraint go and change only that then if it's still a constraint then go and elevate it then go and get more and then the last step is a warning Don't let inertia become your constraint. If you've broken a constraint, go back to step one. Yes. Well, but interestingly, they could have, your pricing increase, you know, if the restaurant has got more demand than they can deal with, instead of not taking bookings, they could have put the price up. That's one way of better exploiting, right? A constraint, a scarce resources to change the price of of allowing, for example, we do the same with with. Companies that are in a position where they currently there's there's more demand for the product, right? So how do you control it? Because people are overordering when they panic, right? This one way of doing it is to to increase the price to say, you know, if you're sitting with three months stock, don't order now. We have a we have a capacity shortage for those that really need it. We can provide it to you, but at a premium. And, that's a way uh, of better exploiting rather than wasting a scarce resource. I think that's fab. One of the things you said that you did research into is why ostensibly smart people make bad decisions and then make them again. Let's let's have a quick chat about that. Yeah. So why do good people make and often repeat bad decisions? Um, the the sort of simple answer is we make good people make bad decisions for good reasons. So it's a it's an important thing from from just almost an approach in life. Because what I can do is when I see a bad decision, I can conclude one of two things. I can conclude that this is a bad person, get rid of them, or it's just a stupid person, also get rid of them. The other way of approaching it is to say, when I see bad decision, I believe people are good and that people are smart. So the only other option would be 
good smart person with a bad assumption. Mm-hmm. So, I essentially we want to find out what are these bad assumptions that are causing people to make bad decisions. And you get sort of two types of these bad or limiting assumptions. One of them is to do with the fact that when you're trying to optimize systems, you want to you you have two needs. You want to survive and grow. The problem is that often the mechanisms that we put in to protect against you know dying, essentially our protection mechanisms, the opposite impact. If you think about a person that is that is distrusting of their partner, right? The distrust is causing a lot of harm in the relationship. You can imagine that type of person, right? Going through the phone, going through the messages, where are you going, where have you been, etc. It's just a nightmare to live with a person like this. But why did I have a ba- this bad assumption? Because of an assumption that people can't be trusted. Why did I have this assumption? Because it's a way for them to protect themselves. But it has the opposite. The same is true in business. Many times the protection mechanisms that we put in business often cause the exact problem that we're trying to prevent. The other one is that to optimize systems are often require rules that are very counterintuitive from a local perspective. If you think about multitasking, right? At the local level, multitasking is very intuitive. It makes us feel busy. Right when we are able to do lots of things at the same time, it's very uncomfortable to say no or not now to somebody. But it's the worst possible way of achieving the highest level of productivity, both for the for the individual but also for the company. So to switch to single is a very very counterintuitive thing. Up to quite recently, we thought that multitasking is the way to become most productive. We were hiring people. <laughs> Based on how good they are at multitasking, right? Today we know that nobody's good at multitasking, and the ones that feel that they are good are the most dangerous because they will keep on doing it and cause havoc for everybody because they'll keep on starting more and more things. The type of two things is we make assumptions about reality. When these assumptions are wrong, then it causes us to make and often repeat bad decisions. And a very practical way, if you think about you can either overreact or underreact to a situation. Why would you overreact? Is when I have an exaggerated frustration with the status quo, that could be my company performance or my relationship, it can cause me to overreact. Or if I have an exaggerated expectation of the impact of the change, like why do I lose my temper? I have some kind of exaggerated expectation of the benefit of doing that. Where when you allow yourself to just slow down a little bit and go, really? Like, what is the maximum upside you're going to get from losing your temper? You quickly realize, ah, there's probably no big upside here. But it feels in the moment like, you know, I'm entitled to lose my temper. Or this is going to be show them how serious this is, etc. So that's on the one side. We overreact because of exaggerated frustrations and expectations. We underreact, we procrastinate for the exact opposite reason. We have exaggerated fears of loss or effort or risk. 
And, and that's the, the, the simple answer to the question why good people make and often repeat bad decisions is because of these exaggerated frustrations, expectations, or fears. And I, I, was listening to, I was listening to something the other day. I can't remember the name of the author, but this guy had studied that sort of continuum of emotion. And it goes, I think his thing goes from zero to 2,000. And in life, people might move five points on the scale. And so it's very difficult. Most people find it very difficult or maybe even never have the self-awareness that sort of, you know, between the stimulus and the reaction is that gap. And that's what you're talking about. That sort of, I'm going to get angry. And lots of people go through life just being angry and people just go, they're just an angry person. And they never end up with the self-reflection to say, I should change it. I should do something about it. How could I do something about it? A couple of years back, I had the opportunity to teach, you know, decision-making for a school of young kids. And it's like, okay, how do you teach a complicated topic to kids? And I, I used this I, I, analogy. I started off when saying, do you realize that your whole life is going to be determined by a mathematical formula? And I go, no. So do you want to know what it is? They go, yes. So I wrote on the board, E plus R equal O. You know, events plus response is equal to outcome. I said, events are things that happen to you. You can influence them sometimes, but you can't control them, and I could be positive or negative. Response is the only thing that you can control, and your response can also be positive or negative, and that will ultimately determine the outcome. And I said to him, so let's do some math together. You have a positive event that happens to you, right, and a positive response. What's the outcome? It's a double positive. Wow. Okay. What happens if you have a positive event and a negative response? So somebody says, wow, you look great today, and you go, what do you want? It will wipe it out, right? What if you had a negative event with a positive response? It can also wipe it out, right? You can think about what can I learn from this event? How do I use this in the future? If you have a negative event and a negative response, it's a double negative. And we use that kind of analogy to say what you need to do, firstly, is you need to Stop yourself from reacting. You want to respond to events. When we react, we are in that fully automatic mode, and that is what's causing us to over and underreact based on the previous. You know, why do we over and underreact? Because of these exaggerated emotions of frustrations, expectations, and fears. But that's the first thing is to avoid the mistake of reacting. So, okay, how do I do that? And what you just said is, is that. That moment, right, where you realize, okay, somebody said something, how do I want to respond to this? Not react, but respond. And then to slow down your thinking a little bit, and then to think about what's the outcome I want. And that's often enough. Just a reminder to not react, but to respond. And then another reminder to say, by the way, what's the outcome you want here? Now that you think about the outcome, what is the response? What's the best response here that can get you as close as possible to that outcome? That's what it's sort of how we teach decision-making at the most fundamental level. That's fab. I was talking to some guys yesterday about their book, Unbreakable, which is about resilient teams. And we were talking about that response at a team level, emergency or some sort of outside stimulus. And one of the things that they said they found by studying unbreakable teams is that Teams have to practice what our response would be so that when the unexpected happens, they've got some muscle memory to call on. 
Uh, absolutely. It is a, it's, you know, we, we talk about decision making as an applied science, right? <laughs> you have to actually practice it to develop these muscles. Of course, the, the, that formula E plus R is really simple to understand. Life is a little bit more complicated and it's complicated in, in a couple of ways. The first one is that there's never just one response. I always have at least two responses. I can do something or not do something, right? Or I can do something versus do something else. So that's the first complication is to say, when you think about the outcome, what are the options you have to respond? The second complication is that every option for response will have pros and cons. So listing clearly, I have two responses. It puts me in a conflict. What are the pros and cons of, of option one? What's the pros and cons of option two? What's the upside and what's the downside of each of them? And then to get into the mindset of saying, I need to find a response, an option that has the biggest possible upside and the smallest possible downside. And that, that's kind of, if you think about trading, you know, when you're thinking about decisions as optionality, is yeah. you become anti-fragile, right? Which is this, this opposite of fragile, is you become anti-fragile when you have a stress response that limits the downside and maximizes the upside. And that's a kind of a, another useful way of thinking about it is that, okay, I have these two options. Each one of them have pros and cons rather than trying to select the one with the most pros and the, and the least cons is to think about now that I understand all the pros of both options, I want to keep the pros of both options. I don't want the cons of either option. That's my need, right? My need is I want the pros of both and I don't want the cons of how do I create an option, a response that gives me the most pros and the least cons. And, and that's a key part of really practicing. And, and when you have a diverse team and you give them that challenge, it's amazing what they come up with. We use that methodology to come up with innovations in, in product design, service design, business model design, is to think about what's the alternative and to say that these two options give me the full needs. They give me all the pros I want to keep of the existing design and the pros I want of the new design. And they also give me the cons of the new design that I don't want and the cons of the old design that I want to get rid of. That's the full need description. So see if you can come up with a, a new option, a new design that can give you as many of the pros as possible with as few as the, the cons as possible. Fab. Alan, that's great. What is it you know now that you wish you'd known earlier? It's a, it's a great question. I think part of it is when it comes to decision-making, almost one of the first things I tell people is, you know, give yourself and other people a little bit of credit, right? It's, it's so easy to make bad decisions. You know, I, I give an example. You have a, a simple recipe, you know, four ingredients, four steps. How many ways are there to get it wrong? <laughs> a lot, <laughs> right? <laughs> so <laughs> just give yourself a bit of credit as that it's so easy to make bad decisions. It's actually hard to make good decisions under real world conditions because of all the, the uncertainty and complexity. But you can dramatically improve your ability to make better, faster decisions when you are able to just slow down your thinking. Is every time you get that positive or negative stress, right, that event that happens, is to just resist the temptation to react 
in fully automatic mode, which is where most of our decision making, what Daniel Kahneman calls, you know, system one, our fast way of thinking, it's fully automatic. We're not thinking about it. And for most decisions, that's fine. You know, what I'm eating, what I'm wearing, even how do I get to work? Most of the time, our fast system is, is, is good enough for that. But it's when it really matters, when you realize and that's where it's important to trust your gut is when you, when you feel like this event is important, right? This thing that I need to respond to is important. Slow down your thinking and, and think about the outcome that you want. What's the options you have available? And pick an option that has the biggest upside and the smallest downside. And then the last thing is about the, the value of focus. Don't try to do everything. Pick something that you love something that you're really good at doing, something that can make a positive impact on the world, something that can make you enough money and just focus on that. If I'd learned that much early on, I would probably be much, much further than what I am today. Brilliant. And other than reading The Goal, are there any other books you recommend people picking up? Yeah, I, one of my friends, Dr. Benjamin Hardy, recently co-authored a book called Why 10X is Easier Than 2X, which talks about the, the importance is, of setting very ambitious targets. Um, it's fabulous, isn't it? Yeah, he said to some degree, I kind of inspired him and, and Dan Sullivan to write that book because of a comment I made. We were at a mastermind with Joe Polish and he, he asked people to think about, you know, how to increase their net profit by 10%. And then he turned to me because he was interviewing me on stage and he said, Alan, what do you think about that question? And I said, I think it's a really bad question. He said, Why? <laughs> I said, because how many ways are there to improve your net profit by 10%? So many ways. A much better question would be, think of at least one way that you can improve your net profit by 10x. Because even if you're partially successful, it will give you tremendous power and it will force your brain to focus on those high leverage points, those few things that can have a huge impact. So, so that's one book that I can highly recommend. And the other one, probably Anti-Fragile by Nassim Taleb, you know, thinking about any change that you can make as an option, you know, you have a right without an obligation to make changes in your life and in your business. So what is a good option? And when do I exercise an option? A good option is one that has a big upside if it really works and a small downside if it doesn't. A really bad option is one that has a small upside if it actually works and a huge downside if it doesn't. Stay the hell away from those. So uh, those are two quick recommendations I can make. Alan, thank you. It's been, it's been fabulous talking to you today. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. If you'd be kind enough to leave a review, it will really help other like-minded entrepreneurs find this podcast and grow our community. For all information relating to this episode, you can go to monkhouseandcompany.com forward slash podcast, where you'll find some cracking show notes, additional reading and links relating to our guest. There you can also find my blog and past episodes of my subjectively not crap newsletter, where I'll update you on the best articles I read that week, some recommended books and other podcasts. Thanks, and I will see you next week.